Good evening, everybody. It's really wonderful to see you, and thank you so much for the um, invitation. I count it a huge privilege. The title that I'd like to speak to this evening is uh, Reformed and Always Reforming, A New Reformation? Question mark. Let me start by reading something from uh, Martin Luther's table talk. This life, therefore, is not righteous, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. And this is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. I'll return to that a little later on. I've never been sure that using the word reformed with an ED on the end is the best way to describe the theological position of those of us who see the Reformation as a powerful movement rooted in the reassertion of grace as the heartbeat of vivacious Christian faith. It's not that I have any issues with the fundamental doctrines asserted by those who have gone before us. Although, like most of you here, I wrestle theologically with some of their arguments. I struggle even more with the caricatures of their arguments and their characters by some today. Whilst none of the leaders of the Reformation were perfect, Martin Luther's temper and increasingly hostile language about Judaism, John Calvin's intransigence and his treatment of his opponents, Huldrych Zwingli's tacit approval of the ostracization of Anabaptists, and Philip Melanchthon's weakening of his convictions and his dilution of his evangelical principles on something called adiaphora in the Leipzig interim are just a few examples. They were, however, leaders of their time, and they were all acutely aware of their own shortcomings and their fallen natures in a way that I think we moderns are not often aware. The non-existent spiritual gift of hindsight is easy for us to use. We judge these leaders more harshly than we judge our, ourselves. To quote the epistle of John, or I beg your pardon, the epistle of James, despite what Luther would have thought about me doing so, from verses uh, 22 to 25 of chapter 1, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any hearers of the word are not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in the mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they are like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. In the 31 years that I have been a follower of Jesus, these reformers have become my companions, my mentors, and my guides. They have rooted me in scripture. They have reminded me of grace. They have forced me to see the glorious liberty of the gospel. When I was on the verge of walking away from Pentecostalism, they rescued me. As I read them, I think 
I hear not just their theological rigor and passion for God and for his word. I also hear their inner struggles with the very traits of character that others highlight as the reformer's flaws. Luther knew his weaknesses and he knew his powerlessness to change them. Calvin knew that Geneva's model wasn't working as he had hoped. And he increasingly struggled with the implications of that reality. Zwingli, I believe, found it hard to come to terms with his own attitudes and behaviours. And Melanchthon himself came to regret what he said about the disputable matters controversies. But my question that I want to unpack with you, if you will give me permission, is whether reformed is the right description or reforming would be better. My struggle with the use of the word reformed as a descriptor isn't because of any of the things that I've just mentioned or indeed any of the great theological truths that these leaders have opened up to me. My struggle is much more ontological than that. I'm not at all sure that the use of the past tense is right. They did not see themselves as simply reformed in a completed and a finalized way. Close examination of their ministries shows that they saw themselves as reforming. Their time on earth was not the final chapter of a story that was being completed. It was a chapter of the story and purpose of God as it was unfolding in their generation and as it would continue to unfold in generations to come. They weren't creating for the sake of it, denominations or streams or tribes. Their disagreements with Roman Catholicism were never intended to be the definition of who they were. Across the last few days, the powerful teachings and reflections that have been presented in Luther 500 have been breathtaking. They are truths that continue to shape us. They've reminded us of the great truths of grace, faith, Scripture, the cross, justification, holiness, and witness. R.T. Kendall's passionate exposition of justification by faith alone and his incisive setting out of a powerful answer to the debate about faith and works in James 2 reminds us of the power of those great truths. Greg Downs' exploration of theses number 1, 6, 27, 28, 37, 54, 62, 65, 68, 78, 90, and 95 was an apposite reminder of the sparks that set fire to the dying embers of spiritual life and the dried tinder of hope that was scattered across the floors of life in Europe in the early 16th century. Bruce's clear and inspiring setting of the legacy of the Reformation reminds us that we see the impact of this great move of God all around us. And Leonardo de Quiro's careful and accurate analysis of why the theological discussions and soteriological convictions of the era still matter to us are a salutary reminder of why standing for truth still matters. None of these principles is a dead one. Too often, Theological conviction is seen as a relic of a bygone era to be placed in a glass cabinet for inspection now and then. And for the occasional visitor who's interested in history, when actually theological conviction is the sinew and the muscle 
that holds a healthy body together. We need these truths just as urgently and just as profoundly as they did in the 16th century. Our context is different, but the battle is the same. Will we be shaped by the culture around us or by the truth as revealed to us by Almighty God through his Son, the Son who is displayed through the Bible? What Luther did was not the end. It was part of a process that continues to this day. The process of continually being reformed. It's my conviction that Luther and indeed all of the reformers held this mindset. They understood that their work of reformation was about clearing the flotsam and the jetsam of debris that had been gathered around the truth of who God is, what God does in the world and how God communicates with us. They were bold, courageous leaders who not only critiqued the world in which they lived, but also the world that they had inherited. We need the same boldness, the same courage, and the same faithfulness today. Let me give you an example of why I think they were part of a reforming tradition. By looking at the Council of Jerusalem. They have reminded us of the great truths of grace. But Luther and the other reformers were not afraid to challenge the assumptions that existed all around them in a world where the power and the influence of the church and of Christendom was much more evidence than it is today. In many ways, their reformation was more dangerous, more life-threatening, and more politically and religiously disruptive, precisely because they lived in a world where the church held such power and position and privilege. Yet their work also examined those who had gone before them. They critiqued the scholastics. They weren't afraid to critique the church fathers and all those who had gone before because they were reaching backwards to the church that was being formed in the testamental period itself. And they were finding lifelines of truth in the church of scripture that would bring safety to the church in the 16th century and still bring safety to us. But they were doing more than that. To borrow a phrase from the former conservative prime minister, John Major, they were going back to basics. They were rooting the reality of Christian life and therefore the reality of Christian hope and vitality and the shape of the church that was to come after them in the life of the church that had gone before them. To the extent that they were doing that, they were simply mimicking the church of the New Testament itself. Mimic is one of the Greek words from which the word disciple comes. Peter, James, Paul, Stephen and John rooted the truth of who the church of Jesus Christ was in the words of Christ and in the story of Judaism, but they went further. The decision of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 was a moment of liberation for the church. And I would argue a key moment that helps us understand what Reformation itself is actually about. Just as the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem Council had to grapple with fundamental questions so we have to grapple with fundamental questions. This first council addressed the issue of whether followers of Christ 
were an extension of Judaism or not. The evangelistic endeavors of Barnabas and Paul were bearing huge fruit amongst the Gentiles. And that aroused the suspicion and the concern of the Jerusalem church. Read Acts 15.1. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The arguments on both sides were heated and strong, as is clear from the language of the next verse. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and with the elders. Verse 7 of Acts 15 also tells us that there was much debate about what was happening. It was the believers who were in the sect of the Pharisees mentioned in verse 5 that demanded circumcision of the new Gentile believers. But the heartbeat of the council was the heartbeat of Luther and the heartbeat of the Reformation that would appear 1,600 years later. As Peter is recorded as saying in verse 10 and 11, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That great declaration of freedom of the council is found in verses 28 and 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Succinct, clear, passionate, strong. The leader of the Jerusalem church, James, sets out his position and with it ushers in the first great reforming principle of the church of Jesus Christ in verses 19 to 21. We should not trouble these Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. At the heart of the Jerusalem Council, at the heart of Luther, at the heart of Calvin and Zwingli, and all of the reformers of the 16th century and all that have flowed from it was this hope of a simple hope and liberation grounded in grace and given to us through the gift of faith that we must hold on to. Therein lies the great message of hope and liberation for the New Testament church that spread from Jerusalem, the center of the religious world, to Rome, the center of the political world, within just one generation and recorded in the book of Acts. My favorite part of the book of Acts, if I'm allowed a favorite part, is the last word in Greek. As it describes all that God has done, we are told this, and the spirit moved unhindered. This book ends with this powerful picture of the gospel 
carried by the Spirit, pushed by him from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth, with Paul housebound, arrested, and restricted in his movement, but the gospel free and God pushing it by the power of his Spirit around the world. I get excited about that. The people of God are marked by conversion. In Acts 15, verse 3, it's clear. We are saved by grace through faith and we are called to live our lives free from the tyranny of the surrounding culture. Be that a religious culture or a pagan culture or an idolatrous culture or a secular culture. And to maintain our relationships and sexual purity because our bodies are important and what we do with them reflects what we believe about God and human beings. No religious authority, be it Jewish Roman Catholic, or for that matter, Protestant, has a higher or more important voice than the voice of God himself, as spoken through the Holy Spirit in the Jerusalem Council, or through the same Spirit as he speaks to us through his word, the Bible. My contention is that the reforming spirit of the people of God found in Acts 15 and evidenced in the epistles and rooted in Christ who himself told us that not one jot or tittle of the law would be eroded or removed but instead had been completely and utterly fulfilled in him is the same reforming spirit that led Luther and the other reformers to stand for the truth. Furthermore, it is the same spirit of reformation that we need to allow to sweep over us again today and not only today but in every generation of the church of Jesus Christ. I want to argue that Luther was not only reformed but also reforming and that Christians must carry this work on in every generation. We are all called to be reforming. The task never stops. Yet in saying this, I'm immediately confronted by the great danger of such a statement. If we are to be reforming, continually seeking to be the people that God has called us to be, then what's our starting point? Where is our anchor grounded? What is the unmovable center? of the people of God? And what is the energy behind such a constantly reforming movement? Let me explain why I'm saying that to you. Because at this very moment, across North America and Europe in particular, there is a pseudo-reformation taking place. And the difference is this. It is not being led by those that are grounded in the inerrant scriptures. It's being led by those that are taking the language of the Reformation and the language of evangelicalism and using it to redefine what a Christian or an evangelical is. And I want to ask you something. If we don't continue the task of reforming, then are we willing to give away the 500-year legacy that we have inherited and allow it to become something that is picked up, thwarted, changed, adulterated and transformed and used by another part of the church. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to let that happen on my watch. I have a consistent dream that I have. 
And it's a dream of me being an old man. Maybe I'll live to it. I was 47. I am 47 today. I tell you, RT just said to me when he arrived, you better be good, because I give up going to the theater to come and hear you tonight. And I wanted to say, you better be nice. I give up my birthday to come and be with you. I'm 47, and I often have a dream, and this is a real dream. I think it's from the Lord. I'm an old man, and I'm talking to my oldest son, who's 24 now, and he's called Matthew. And he looks me straight in the eye, and he says, Dad, what did you do to defend the gospel? And I want to say to him, I never hear the answer in the dream. I wake up before I give the answer. I have it about once a week. And I dream every time I have the dream, I wake up and I say, Lord, I want my answer to be everything I could. I want my answer to be, I give everything I could to hold on to the truth of who you were and to help the church understand it. I don't know what I answer. I wish I could stay asleep for just a few minutes longer to find out. We find in the pages of the New Testament, the church that is learning what it means to be grounded in the truth of who God is and what God has done through his son and through his spirit. The New Testament church wrestled with the Judaizers, the Gnostics, the Syncretists, the Epicureans, the Nicolaitans, the Stoics, the Cynics, and other groups that were thriving in their individual contexts. Their strength and their determination was rooted in God, however. It wasn't rooted in the culture of their day. They were, to quote the book of John, in the world, but not of it. Their conviction was rooted in the conviction that God had revealed his plans and his purposes to the world through his son and his son's identity, mission, and ministry was deeply rooted in the story of Israel and the promises, hopes, and definitions of the Hebrew Bible. As the church grew and moved and engaged with different cultures and traditions, those convictions in turn led to the recognition that a church that was spreading around the world needed to be rooted in the same story, in the same God, in the same Christ as had been discovered by this early church. They were not free to change the story. They were not free to alter the priorities of the gospel or to redefine Christ. And so they looked to those who had walked with Christ to see what they said. They recognized the weight of those words and writings of the church's foremost leaders, pastors, and thinkers. They affirmed the books and the epistles and the letters that had been shaping the churches rooted in Christ's life. And what we now see is the New Testament became the next part of God's gift to his people so that we could constantly be reforming, but always remain rooted in him. Without this canon, this plumb line, this benchmark, we will define God according to our needs and our wants. And we will allow ourselves to be made in the image of our culture on the one hand or our religious traditions and diktats on the other. This, brothers and sisters, is the heart of ongoing healthy reformation. 
our authoritative text is not our church's leaders or our pastor's voices or even our reformers' historical positions, nor is it the prevalent culture of our day. Our authoritative text is the text that has been gifted to us by God, or as Jim Packer once described it, God preaching. It's the Bible. We can only be continually reformed if we are rooted in Christ. And we can only be rooted in Christ if we are rooted in the Christ of the Scriptures. So I want to ask, how can we still be reforming today? It is now to two challenging questions that I want us to turn our attention. The first is, what are the challenges the church faces today? And the second is, are we willing to always be reforming? So let's turn to the first question. Where do we need to be continually reforming in the church today? There are many challenges that we face, but there are also powerful moments of opportunity all around us. I want to highlight three that I believe were issues that Luther wrestled with profoundly and where I believe we can carry the reforming legacy forward. The Bible, the gospel, and the church. First, the Bible, the need for a reliable anchor. There were many great challenges faced by Luther, and we've explored some of them over the last few days. But what are the challenges that the church of Jesus Christ is facing today? It's a global question, but I'm not entirely sure that it can be answered globally in one way, and in another way, I think it can. Each culture and context presents its own challenges. So in Europe and in North America, we have challenges of increasing liberalism. A redefined morality has gripped our cultures, but it's also gripping our churches. This can be seen in many ways, but none as clearly as the raging arguments and battle lines that have been drawn around, for example, human sexuality, gender identity, our approach to money, to power, to the dignity of the individual, the rights of refugees, the issues of human trafficking, arms trading, the issues and the rights of the vulnerable, such as the disabled or the unborn child. I'm convinced that the greatest need of the church in the world today is to reaffirm and hold on to the reality that we are shaped under the scriptures and that the scriptures remain the ultimate authority for us in all matters of doctrine, faith, life, and practice. All of the examples I have listed, from human sexuality to the rights of the unborn, are shaped by what sits at the center of our lives as our ultimate source of authority. It is the church's increasing biblical ignorance and the attendant inability to clearly define what a disciple is according to God's intention and the attendant inability to make disciples effectively that is leading to the collapse of Christian confidence and witness in Europe and North America and so many other places. I'm convinced personally that a central tenet of my own ministry is to give my life, my ministry, my words and my passion to defending the place of scripture at the heart of the church and to defend the role of the church 
in speaking confidently and passionately into the societies of which we are a part. Let me be clear. Without the clear boundaries of Scripture, we will wander in an ever-increasing and worsening wilderness of human destructiveness and self-obsession. The church's identity, witness, and life is imbued with power and possibility by the Spirit of God. But he never contradicts the Word of God. If we want to be a vibrant, life-giving witness to the world, then we must allow ourselves to discover a glorious, vibrant, passionate love of the Word of God. We do not worship it, but we must let it shape our worship. We do not simply quote it to the world, but we must let its truths, its vocabulary, and its purpose be the foundation of our convictions and our words and our witness. We must make the case for preaching it, reading it, memorizing it, teaching it, meditating upon it, singing it, and being deeply rooted in God through it. We are not free to reframe, reframe its teaching or its meaning. We are not free to soften its blow. We cannot and should not pick and choose from it for our best bits. The Bible is not an extended version of every day with Jesus. We cannot let anyone, a pastor, an archbishop, a superintendent, or a pope, tell us what they say is right and what is wrong about the Bible. The scriptures have been given to us by God as the reliable anchor for us in so many ways. The anchor of our view of God, what it means to have God as a father, what it means to be saved by the son, what it means to be empowered by the spirit. The anchor of our view of ourselves, the anchor of our view of human personhood, the anchor of our view of the church, the anchor of our view of the world, the anchor of our view of the mission of the church in the world and the anchor of our view of where the, the world is heading. This battle for the scriptures and their place is not new for us, but it is vitally important. All my life, one of the men that has shaped me most in my ministry and my theological thinking is seated on my right, R.T. Kendall. I never thought that I would share speaking in a conference with him, and I'm sure you've made a mistake in the invitation. <laughs> but 50 or 60 years ago, when you were a young man, within the evangelical church, there would have been a broad swathe of agreement about the place and the role and the authority of the Bible. Not across the whole church, but within the evangelical church, that would have been there. And that has now changed. We now have an increasing number of evangelicals who have moved away from the authority of the Bible in any meaningful and faithful way. We shouldn't be surprised. It is the inevitable outworking of the downgrade controversy of the 19th century, the consequence of a Bartian understanding of the scriptures and the unavoidable destination of a weak and culturally limited understanding of narrative theology. Let me explain. If the Bible is simply a source of authority and it can mean whatever we want it to mean, then we have dissolved any meaningful understanding of authority in the acid of our human superiority to God. If the Bible is only authoritative when I choose to let it be so, then I become the arbiter of truth 
rather than the servant of it. And if the narrative means that Christ's kingship is achievable by our own efforts and actions, then we have locked away our need of God and thrown away the key. I'm utterly convinced that the rediscovery of the potency and the priority of the Bible and its message is the only thing that will pull us back up the slipway that we are hurtling down. A slipway into the dirty, destructive waters of either increased secularism or, if you will allow me to change the metaphor, if we do not discover the life-giving seed of the truths of Scripture, then we will remain a castrated and a barren church. Let me remind you of something that Luther himself said. It's in, translated in Old English, so I'm going to put it on the screen so you can follow it. Whoso layeth a good foundation and is a substantial text man, that is, he that is well grounded in the text, the same hath whereupon he surely may keep footing and runneth not lightly into error. And truly, said Luther, the same is most necessary for a divine for with the texts and grounds of the Holy Scriptures, I dazzled, astonished, and overcame all my adversaries. For they approach dreamily and lazily. They teach and write according to their natural sense, reason, and understanding. And they think the Holy Scripture is a slight and a simple thing. Like the Pharisee who thought a business soon done when our Saviour Christ said unto him, Do that and thou shalt live. The sectaries and seducing spirits understand nothing in the scriptures, but with their fickle, inconstant and uncertain books, which they have devised, they run themselves into error. Who is, whoso is armed with the text? The same as a right pastor. And my best advice and counsel is, said Luther, that we draw water out of the true fountain that is diligently to read the Bible. He is a learned divine that is well grounded in the text. For one text and sentence out of the Bible is of far more esteem and value than many writings and glosses, which neither are strong, sound, nor armor of proof. As when I have that text before me of St. Paul, where he saith, all the creatures of God are good if they be received with thanksgiving. This text showeth that what God hath made is good. Now, eating, drinking, marrying, etc., are of God's making. Therefore, they are good, but the glosses of the primitive fathers are against this text. For St. Bernard, Basil, Dominicus, Hieronius, and others have written far otherwise of the same. But I prefer the text above them all. And it is for more, far more to be esteemed of than all their glosses, yet notwithstanding in popedom. The glosses of the fathers were of higher regard than the bright and clear text of the Bible through which great wrong oftentimes is done to the Holy Scriptures. For the good fathers, as Ambrose, Basil, and Gregory, have oftentimes written very cold things, touching the divine word. Now, I know that's hard English, but here's what he's saying. The text is more important than anybody else's commentary upon it. It doesn't matter whether it's Dominic or a Benedict or Augustine. It doesn't matter who it is. The text is a life-bringing source ordained by God and we must follow it. If only we could allow that to shape our thinking. Luther's passion for scripture and its impact did not go far enough. His culture was Christendom. Ours is not. 
The privileged place of the church is in many ways gone. But rather than lament that, we can take up the hopeful position that we find ourselves in on the margins of our societies and we can begin to reimagine a biblically literate and a biblically faithful church. Luther's ecclesiology was not reformed enough. He was shaped and governed by the culture of his day more than he knew. We can press into what it means to celebrate the calling of all Christians. We can press the argument for the shaping influence of the scripture in the lives of Christians in business, education, healthcare, healthcare, the halls of power, the arts, media, and every other sphere of society. Luther's world was largely Christianized. Ours is largely not. Yet, the vestiges of Christianity remain. In our collective consciousness, the whisper of a long-forgotten Christian heritage still lingers. The loss of the place of Christian faith at the heart of Europe and the United Kingdom and the accelerating loss of it in the United States is surely to be deeply regretted. But it must also be an opportunity to find a way back into influence without seeking to reinstate Christendom. It is the task of every pastor, every teacher, to push further than Luther did, to help our congregations, young and old, to see that their callings are holy, their lives are precious, and their contributions to society and to the world can blaze the candle of Christian hope in the darkness of our world. We must fight for the power of the truth of the scripture in the church so that our societies can once again be shaped by those same truths. This will not be easy, but it is possible. To paraphrase Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the church will be most effective in the world when we are most different from her, even if she hates us for a while. We are most effective when we are most distinctive. But when we are most distinctive, we will be rejected for a while. My second point is that we need a rediscovery of what the gospel actually is and the difference between the gospel and mission. I can't say this with absolute certainty because, as I said earlier, I'm a young man. <laughs> but my understanding of history is this. I don't believe that the gospel has been as dangerously misunderstood by Christians as it is now since the time of Luther. The gospel is not mission, and the mission is not, and mission is not the gospel. The Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Now, I would therefore remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. Now listen to this. Words that are seismic in their importance. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. All around me, I see Christian leaders in my generation who have lost the clarity of Paul's definition of the gospel. They've come to believe that the gospel is making the world a better place, letting people know that they are loved, helping people politically, socially, or ethically. You would be forgiven for believing that Jesus died so that we could have debt centers and food banks established around the country and so that we could have Christian schools. These are powerful and beautiful expressions of the obedient and life-giving witness of a disciple of Jesus as she or he engages in the mission of God in the world, standing for the broken, serving the poor, being a voice for the marginalized and the forgotten and making a difference, but they are not the gospel. Even if it is possible to fulfill all these social, political, moral, educational and ethical aspirations and I want to be in front of line championing that we should be involved in them all. The achievement of them all would not secure the liberation of a person from the bonds of sin and a reconciled life with God. They may be good and beautiful expressions of Christian compassion and mission, but the gospel is much more profound, more life-changing than any of these things. Paul's gospel, and I would argue the apostolic gospel, giving his use of the words in verse 3, I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, could not be made more clear. Here it is. It is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised to life on the third day, and that he appeared to witnesses. And all of this was in accordance with the scriptures. This message of liberation from sin because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection puts the cross and the empty tomb at the center of our core message to the world. Christ has borne the wrath of God. He has conquered the power of sin and Satan and death. And he has risen in victory to free us from our sin, from our shame and from our helplessness. Those who were far away from God can now become sons and daughters of God through his grace and his mercy. Nothing we can do can make that happen. God has done it all. He is sovereign. He is saviour. And he is sufficient. There is no better news in all the universe than this. Luther caught this. But all around me, I see a church losing sight of this glorious message. We are allowing making a difference to replace making disciples. There is surely work to be done by us in this area. How can we make churches preaching centers to this hope once again? How can we avoid becoming simply social or political activists and instead allow the gospel to sit at the heart of who we are and what we do? I wonder, do our people know the gospel? Have we ensured that those in our care are truly converted as much as we can and not just churched? or Christianized? Have we helped our congregations understand the difference between being nice and being born again? The wonderful, beautiful mission of God is the response of a thankful person 
to the work of grace in our hearts. It is what we are made for. Our beautiful calling that is like the playing of a symphony before a world desperate for a better tune. Or painting in beautiful colour for a world that can only see in black and white. Or dancing the mission of God into a lame and crippled society. That is why we are individually God's masterpiece, his work of art, according to Ephesians 2.10. But this is our response to the gospel that has set us free. And even these good works are an act of grace. Brothers and sisters, our nation needs this gospel more than ever before. I'm constantly hearing of Christians who are losing this beautiful message of forgiveness and of life and of hope and the attendant serious warnings of eternity without God and lostness if we reject grace. I can, have think, I can think of nothing, and I want to, you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I can think of nothing more open, affirming, life-giving, welcoming, inclusive, and hopeful than this message. Yet many of us in the evangelical church have given those words away. Open, welcoming, affirming, accepting, inclusive. We've let those beautiful words be stolen by groups who are trying to make evangelicalism weaker by suggesting God has the power to love you but not the power to transform you. A gospel that promises God's love, but not God's power, isn't only good news, it's extremely bad news. It's either a license to do what you want and think you have God's blessing because he doesn't mind or can't change you, or it's a tacit acceptance that God is not as strong as he claims to be. And you can enter his family through grace, but the rest is up to you. Neither of those are particularly good options. Instead, we need to discover or rediscover our own confidence in the gospel and then begin to watch as the good news of Jesus Christ spoken by us and shared with others brings hope to the despairing, light to those in darkness and freedom to a sin-enslaved world. I want to redeem, I want to capture, I want to defend that evangelicalism is open and is welcoming and is affirming and is life-giving and is inclusive and not let those words be stolen. I want to reclaim the word evangelical itself because it means good news. The gospel changes lives. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in 1983 won the Templeton Prize. He'd been a Russian dissident imprisoned in a Russian gulag in Siberia for many years. And when he was asked at the Templeton Prize what happened to Russia between 1917 and the fall of the imminent fall of communism that was happening all around him in the early 1980s, he had one sentence and one sentence alone. He said, I can explain to you not only why Russia has collapsed, but why Europe is collapsing. Men have forgotten God. He said it 34 years ago. And if we had forgotten him then, we have forgotten even more of him since. And so I come to my third and my final point. Thank you so much for listening. The church, God's people everywhere must be rediscovered by us. We must hold out for a church vibrant and alive and full of passion and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
A fresh articulation of the gospel and the message of hope gives us life. We have never needed a strong church more than we do today. In Luther's 95 thesis, thesis one reads this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. One of the great gaps for us is that we have allowed repentance to mean something other than the biblical concept of repentance, the metanoia, which is a lifetime dependency and walking toward God, a lifetime rejection of all other things. This is not a negative decision. It's a positive one. It's not a destructive decision. It's a life-giving one. And a church alive and vibrant with men and women, passionate for Jesus, open to what he wants and willing to follow where he leads can be used by God to change the world. But one of the greatest gaps in reformed thinking is that of mission. Perhaps it was because of a lack of ability to travel. Perhaps it was because of the all-pervading presence of Christendom. Whatever it was, the mission of God can be highlighted and asserted more fully and more powerfully now if we will let it be asserted through us. We do not engage in the mission of God because it replaces the gospel, however. We fight for the rights of the unborn. We stand for truth and justice. We influence the world around us. We stand in the corridors of power precisely because we have been born again, because we have been impacted by good news. One of the Greek words for church in the New Testament is the word ekklesia. It doesn't simply mean those that are called out, although that is definitely a core part of its meaning. It had a political and a social meaning in the context that Paul used it. It was those that took responsibility for their wider community. But Paul doesn't just call us the ecclesia. He calls us the ecclesia de theu. He describes the church as the ecclesia of God or the ecclesia from God or the ecclesia whose life and vibrancy and passion and power does not flow from its own ingenuity. It flows from the presence and the power of God in her midst. We must be that church again, a church that is willing to press further, to go further. Luther once said, if you want to change the world, pick up your pen and write. He lived in an age where the printing press was becoming more and more accessible. What would the 21st century equivalent be If you want to change the world, make a video, I don't know. Tweet, I don't think so. (laughs) Write on Facebook, I don't know. The power of the written word is still there. The power of truth written down and communicated with people is still there. I wonder, could you do that? Could God raise up here tonight men and women who will give themselves again to a gospel that is more powerful than we could ever imagine and more able to transform a life than we could ever dream? I want to go back to Martin Luther, then jump forward as I draw my thoughts to a close. Luther and Calvin and Melanchthon and Zwingli were part of something that God was doing. They were followed by the Puritans, who I believe stood in their wake, still part of what God was doing. In the 18th century, I think the awakenings that swept across the United Kingdom and North America with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield we're still part of that same reforming spirit that God was constantly wanting to reach into the lives of men and women 
and renew his church and bring grace and life and hope. I believe that the men like R.A. Torrey and D.L. Moody still stood in that slipstream. And I want to suggest to you that being a Pentecostal, I want to argue that George and Stephen Jeffries stood in the same slipstream, that they were carrying on the reforming work of God, that they were called by him, anointed by him, enabled by him. And I want to take my place alongside those men. I want to be a man who gives my life that the glory of the Lord may cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I believe that the best days of the church could lie ahead of us if we are willing to allow God to give us confidence again about the Bible, confidence again about the cross, confidence again about the gospel and confidence again about what he wants to do with his church. I look around London. I only live 20 minutes from the center of the city in the same village as Bruce, as he said earlier on. And I ask myself, where are the great preaching centers of doctrine and truth in this city? I'm in one of them. Some of them have weakened in the last 10 years. Some churches in our city are becoming more about experience than truth. They're becoming more about what God can do for me than what God can do in the world. We're losing a sight of this powerful gospel in which we must be rooted. But I don't believe that God has given up on Europe. I don't believe it. I don't believe he's given up on London. And when you compare the London of now to the London of 50 years ago, there is more life in this city now than there was then. There is more expression of God. What we must be careful is that it doesn't become diluted. It doesn't become drawn into wrong things. There is a war for the heart of the church in the United Kingdom and in Europe and in North America. And we must believe that we are on the side that will win. We must believe that the gospel is strong enough. We must believe that the Bible will guide us. We must believe that the Spirit is on our side and that he will empower us and enable us. Otherwise, why are we doing this? I recently heard a song that we've been singing in our church for about a year now, written by Ben Cantalon, Luke Helen Broth, and Nick Herbert. Here we are, standing on the edge of something new. Lead us on, further than we've ever been before. With hands held high, be glorified. Our hearts will cry, we are living for the glory of the Lord. Hearts are open wide. We're ready for you. There's nothing we want more. You are all that we adore. Jesus, here we are, ready for you. Where you are, freedom reigns for Christ to set us free. We decide to leave our fears behind for liberty. Our hearts cry, we are living for the glory of the Lord. The task is not finished. I started with the same phrase that I'm going to finish with from Martin Luther. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. 
The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. There is more to be done. And you and I are being called to be the people that can go as far as we can and reach as high as we can so that those that come after us can stand on our shoulders. 100 years from now, what will they say of us? They did all they could or they were too tired or they were too disillusioned or they took the easy road. Not long before he died, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was asked when he would stop. And he said this, while women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. I want to say this. Whilst there's one person who hasn't heard that Christ died for them, whilst there's one church that needs to be lit again by the power of the gospel, whilst there's breath in your body, whilst there's possibility in your imagination, whilst you have life, fight for the gospel. Fight for the scriptures. Fight for the Lord Jesus Christ because I will fight to the very end. Thank you so much. <laughs>